Thank you for tuning in to this very special edition of American Real. I'm Roger Brooks, and today I bring you an incredible conversation that I had with U.S. Army retired Sergeant Rick Yerish. Rick's story is one of courage, hope, inspiration, and love, and I am honored to bring it to you today. I'd like to thank Rick for his service to this country, and I'd also like to thank all the men and women in uniform who put their lives on the line every day to protect our safety, freedom, and civil liberties. Now, if you like this episode, please share it with your friends on Facebook and Twitter, follow us on Instagram, and also subscribe to our YouTube channel, American Real TV. I'd like to thank our partners and sponsors, especially Happy Socks, turning an everyday essential into a colorful design item. I'll be wearing happy socks each and every episode. And now, without further ado, I bring to you Sergeant Rick Yerish. Welcome to American Real. This is Roger Brooks. And today my very special guest is U.S. Army retired Sergeant Rick Yerish, where in 2006, you survived a devastating IED explosion while on a routine mission in Iraq. You are a recipient of the Medal of Courage and are an inspiration to people across the globe, both young and old, delivering a message of pride, hope, and happiness. I am honored to have you here today, Rick, in our studio. Uh, I'm, I'm honored to be in your presence. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Roger, and it's an honor to be here as well. Thank you, thank you. Uh, boy, you are a busy man. Uh, I, you know, when we, when we first started this a couple of months ago, you were, you were top of my list mm -hmm. and uh, you were hard to reach. I had all my resources reaching out to you left and right. Uh, we finally connected and um, so pleased to have you here. Uh, tell us, uh, I know you're on the road a lot. You were in Albany this week. What's that like, uh, um, you know, week to week being so busy with your craft. Yeah, sure. Uh, so being busy is great. Um, I don't know what I would be doing if I wasn't busy. Uh, I mean, now I kind of have an idea. I got married this summer, so I know what I'd, thank you. I know what I'd be doing. I'd be doing stuff around the house and working, <laughs> but really what would I be doing? What would I be accomplishing in the world? And, uh, 
I love being on the road, even though it's tough, especially in a new marriage, you know, leaving my wife and my daughter every uh, Sunday night, uh, like tomorrow I will leave um, for an entire week and I'll come back Friday night. So it's a little difficult to do that, but my wife 100% understands what I'm doing and she understands that what I'm doing is changing lives. Um, and especially in one of the most important uh, people in this world, and that's our kids. Yes. Um, so I'm changing lives and kids, uh, for kids. And that's why I love what I'm doing. And it's a, it's a different crowd every single day. It depends on what school we're in, on, on how that reaction is. So it changes every day. It's not the same exact thing every single day that we're out there. Which is nice, right? Oh, it's absolutely. It's perfect. It keeps it fresh. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, look, today's the first day we officially met uh, in person, but I feel our paths have crossed even on, um, you know, I guess a state of consciousness because back in 2006, uh, I wrote a book called Faces. And the, the whole idea of Faces um, was to really honor people, um, but behind their face. Mm -hmm. uh, my daughter was born, uh, my daughter Alexis was born with a pretty bad tumor on, yeah. on her face. And uh, that was a traumatic experience for us. It was our first child. Um, you know, she had this tumor. We had to deal with it. Uh, she had to have seven surgeries. But when we went to the waiting room and we saw the other kids that were much more severe than our daughter, you know, it really hit me hard. And, and I just wanted to do something to honor people, to get beneath the surface of the face. So I love what you're doing. Um, it's again totally in line with my thinking, and wow, I, I, I'm honored to 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 have you here today. Oh, thank you, thank yeah. you. So, um, uh, the the message of what I just mentioned is that similar to to, to your message? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so especially when I talk to the young kids, young, and I'm talking like K through uh, fifth grade, mm -hmm. kindergarten. Or, um, even pre-K, mm -hmm. we talked to some kids yesterday that were pre-K, and they're three, four years old, some of these kids. And um, when I walk out there, those kids are in shock. Uh, and even more in shock, some of them are terrified when they first see me. Mm -hmm. But I always, I always travel with my service dog, Amos, as well. So I send my service dog out there, the ice is broken a little yeah. bit, and then they just see the dog, and they don't even see me anymore. That's mm -hmm. really how what he does. But what I talk to them about is being different and how being different is so awesome and at that young age that they are uh, exposed to people like me um, oh gosh I don't think I was exposed to people like me until I was 24 years old and in the hospital and seeing people like me mm -hmm. um, so yeah I mean just getting it out there letting it be known that you know we're here right. and so one of the best compliments I've ever gotten was just like a week ago and it was from probably about a six year old kid after I got done presenting he came up and he said you're just a man that's awesome and honestly that, that sounds ridiculous that that could be such a compliment but it's true right. I'm just another guy I just look a lot different that's than right. everybody else and once they see or once they can hear what I'm saying then they, that's when they realize it. They can't see it in the face, mm -hmm. like you were saying. They can't see that in the face. But once they get to know deeper than skin, right. they're like, oh, they're just, he's just a guy. Right. You know, and it, and it reminds me, I, I think this has a, a greater connotation than even uh, an accident, okay? I mean, some people are born with severe yeah. uh, birth defects, birthmarks. 
you were born as a you know a healthy yes. uh, human being, uh, grew up uh, and had a very severe accident. So yes. you really experienced it both ways, right? Yeah, living a normal life, a normal life. twenty four years, and that's what I tell right, people. Is, right. um, people, a lot of times people say, "Man, I, I, you've had it so bad," and I had twenty four years of a normal kid life. I got to grow up in what we call normal. Sure. But I got, I got that. And I'm very lucky to have had that. Um, my motivation a lot of the times will come from St. Jude's. Like if I, if sometimes, you know, I think about how um, if I'm down in the dumps, I'm dealing with some difficult things, I'll go to St. Jude's and I'll look and I'll be like, yeah, I got it pretty darn good. Because for 24 years, I got to live this straight and normal life. These kids... Right. I, they don't know what a normal life is. Yeah. Normal is having your hair fall out, uh, living in a hospital, being sick. How can I say that I have it bad? I can't. It's impossible. And I think people need to understand that. As I don't have it bad. I am very, very lucky and very, very blessed to be in the position that I'm in today. And I've heard you say you're the happiest you've been in your entire yeah, life. Yeah, absolutely. And so I say that. I'll tell you that right now. I'm the happiest I've ever been in my entire life. And I said it yesterday. And I will probably say it tomorrow. And I'll probably say it the next day. Because honestly, every day I'm a little bit happier. I find a little bit more happiness. Will there be tough days? Absolutely. But I know that there are only going to be moments. I don't even allow, I don't even allow them to be days. Mm-hmm. I only Good. allow them to be moments. Right. And if the moments do turn into the day... Then okay, but I know the next day I gotta work through them and I gotta get rid of that moment and uh, don't forget them because I think that's what strengthens us. That uh, adversity that we deal with in life strengthens us to who we are. But I only let them be moments of difficulties. And truly, I know that eventually I'll be the happiest I've ever been in my entire life again. Yeah, and boy, you just got married. You have a daughter, um, and you're out there every day. Helping people. I mean, what better life yeah. can you have? Right? Um, I, I can't define success because everybody else has already done that. But uh, in my opinion, success is uh, being happy while making other people happy. I mean, it doesn't get, in my opinion, it doesn't get more simple than that. Mm-hmm. And it almost sounds ridiculous to people, but doing positive things and making other people happy, that's what makes me happy. And how can that not be success? Right. Right. So I definitely want to talk about um, the accident and, 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 and all that. But before we do so, um, can you tell us what motivated you to go into the military? Was there, a, was there an event? Was there a moment? Was there something that said, hmm? There were a bunch. Okay. Um, some of it was slow happening and it built up to me joining. And then some was instantaneous. Um, the first reason was the fact that I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I graduated in 2000 from Windsor High School, and I didn't join until 2004. So I had this period of time where, what was I doing? Um, Was I making anybody better? No. Was I making myself better? No. How could I do that? I I couldn't make anybody else better, so I definitely wasn't making myself better. Um, I worked in bars, and I just worked, I probably had like seven or eight jobs in that time. I was like, what am I doing? Um, school wasn't for me. I had attempted to go to school. Uh, it just wasn't for me at all. And eventually it was like, all right, it's time. It's time to make a decision to change um, 
the path that I'm on. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the first reason. But that was that slow. It took four years for that to build up and finally be like, okay, it's time. Um, part of that as well was the fact that I was, uh, um, we well, as we all were, affected by 9-11. Yeah. Um, the horrors of 9-11. But also the positive things of 9-11. And people have a really difficult time understanding what I'm talking about when they say positive things about that day. Well, maybe it wasn't in that day. Maybe it was the days after, or the weeks after, or the months after. Um, I believe there's a positive situation in every situation, and I could show you a picture of the towers being hit by an airplane and say, find a positive, and it's almost impossible. But I, I think the problem is we always focus on one single thing, and the picture. Um, but the things that happened afterwards, the country coming together like I had never seen before, and I'll never see again, most likely, unless something horrific happens again, which is terrible. I don't think, I don't understand why we wait to come together right. until after it happens, right. but that's just how it works. Um, but I saw the pride in our country, and I wanted to be a part of that. Uh, I saw that, you know, a lot of people would think that I joined the Army as a cavalry scout, which is a uh, combat job in the middle of a war because I wanted to kill terrorists. And it wasn't that. I saw a pride in our nation. And you know what? I want to be a part of that. I want to fight for that. So that was the second reason that I joined. Um, the positive situation there. And then the third uh, reason was uh, I was at my grandmother's house on Easter Sunday in 2004. And on the coffee table was our, uh, the local newspaper, the Press and Sun. And front page, it said, First Southern Tier Soldier Killed in Iraq. And uh, big photo and it was a, a, actually a wrestler from uh, Sydney. Okay. He was from Sydney, New York. and Which you were a wrestler. Yeah, I was a wrestler. And that's how I knew who he was. And okay. I think everybody who wrestled knew who he was. And I don't think they knew him as like a, very, like a really good wrestler. I think people knew him as a really good guy. He just seemed like one of those guys that was a really good guy. I, never, I don't know if I ever had a conversation with him. But he was a face that I just never forgot because he just always seemed happy. Mm-hmm. So I read that article... And at that moment, I was like, what, what have I done? Now, what am I doing? I'm really doing nothing. So um, after reading that article, saying those things to myself and saying, you know, it's time to make a difference. It's time to make a change. Uh, next day, I went and signed up. I went to the recruiter station and uh, signed up to be a cavalry scout in the Army. So those are the three main reasons that I ended up joining. And uh, how long was your training? Uh, four months. I did four months in uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky, and I stayed a little longer than uh, normal because I did an extra two weeks of training on a new vehicle they were introducing into uh, the Army, and the, that was the Striker. And okay. no longer a new vehicle, but at the time it was just being introduced, and we did some training on that as well. Okay. Was it intense? Was it preparation for battle? Um, no. It was changing your mindset that's all it was and that was tough um imagine anybody you know taking your mind and then reversing it i mean in can four you, months can you give us some examples yeah just uh, everything was then you you've heard people say probably they break you down mm-hmm. so that they can build you back up and that's truly what they did um they almost make you forget who you are a little bit hmm. which honestly for me was an okay thing i didn't i didn't forget who i was but it erased some of the the past. Um, made me tougher. Uh, there was days that I wanted to go home. I'm not going to lie. 
And uh, not physical, not because it was physically tough. Yes, it was physically tough, but it was mentally tough. Um, one day they uh, the drill sergeants came in, and we were about uh, gosh about three months into the training, and they came in with a piece of paper, and they were, sat us all down, and they read from the piece of paper and said. Um, since we are all National Guard drill sergeants, the Army has deemed us not fit to train you. So you all have to start over. Really? Three months in to one of the toughest three months of my life. And they said that. And uh, we were all like, you got to be kidding. We had people flipping out. Like, I can't do another three months of this or another four months of this. Um, and then he said, we're just kidding. <laughs> but... Wow. That was kind of the eye-opening thing. Like, yeah, I don't know if people would do this again if they had to. Knowing afterwards what you were getting into, yeah, people would. Mm-hmm. But in that moment, you haven't really earned anything. Mm-hmm. You're you're uh, a peon, basically. Um, who, who would want to go through it again? You haven't seen the fruits of your labor, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, once you get into the regular army after that training's over, then you see and you deploy, and then you see what all that was about. But yeah. It was difficult times, uh, for sure. Uh, I was one of the older kids there. I was uh, 21 when I got there, and uh, a lot of those kids were 17, 18 years old, and a lot of them didn't care about uh, structure um, and where I came from. I didn't either. But when I got there, it was I needed to just get through this, buckle down, be uh, kind of a silent leader a lot of the times, but be a leader in some way. And it was so hard with some of those kids that they didn't want that. And they didn't care that their actions were going to get you in trouble as well. Mm-hmm. And do, that was hard for me. Do, do you think they uh, looked up to you because you were a little bit older? Did they uh, maybe a little bit, yeah. I mean, I wasn't a true leader um, in the sense like because we they actually, the drill sergeants would take guys and uh, um, put them in leadership roles. And... I kind of wanted to shy back. I didn't know if I really wanted to be seen every single day by the drill sergeants and, you know, be accountable for things. I just kind of wanted to get through that four months. Um, and actually, the drill sergeants came up to me one time at the very end and said, Yersh, we almost made you a leader, but we thought you were slow. So <laughs> <laughs> like, thanks a lot, drill sergeant. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for that one. So uh, then when are you deployed? Right away? Or be- uh, so I was there for a full year. So, okay. so I did my training in Fort Knox. That was my basic, four months in Fort, Fort Knox. And then right after that, I went to um, Fort Hood, Texas. Okay. And I was there for a year. So I did some more training there, and that's where we prepared for war. So that first four months was break you down, build you back up. Then it was, okay, now here you are. Here's your training for war, which is really crazy because when we were in Iraq a year later, after I went to Fort, uh, Fort Hood, there were kids who got right out of basic training and went to war. I mean, I don't even know if they went to, I guess they would have gone to their base for a week or two, but straight to war. No training, no preparation. Now, and that's crazy to me. But that month that I was in um, Fort Hood, that's where I was assigned to my vehicle. I was going to be a Bradley guy. Uh, we had three Bradleys in our platoon. We had a platoon of about 50 people. And uh, each Bradley had only three uh, crew members. And what does that mean for people that don't know what the Bradley is? Uh, so a Bradley is basically, and my, my buddies would shoot me for saying this, but it's basically a small tank. Uh, as scouts, they don't like to call it a tank because tankers drive tanks. And tanks, tankers would even say that's not a tank. But it's a tracked vehicle, and it has a cannon on it. It's uh, just basically a small tank. Okay. And your role was? Uh, at the beginning, it was a driver. 
Um, basically, when you start out, when you're the E1, E2, E3, um, the ranks, you start out at the lowest positions and it's either dismount or driver. Most of the time it's driver. And then you work your way up. So when I was in Iraq, I was a gunner. But in the beginning, started as a driver. And as a driver, you have to know your vehicle. Uh, and you learn the ins and outs of every single piece of the engine, of the compartments, of the turret. You just know everything about the vehicles that Which later on. Yeah. Later on, when you get those more important roles, you know what you can do. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So uh, most of us only see and understand war through what we see through the media, sure. what we see on TV and the history books, etc. Uh, the Gulf War was the first mm -hmm. war of, of television of, yeah. of that era back in the yeah. early '90s. I remember seeing it too. Yeah, the, you were a little kid. The tracer rounds being that's shot right. through the air and the anti-aircraft. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, today we're hearing about fake news, you know, what's, what's right, what's wrong, what's truth, what's mm -hmm. not. Um, can you describe firsthand, what, you know, what you saw sure. when you were there as an insider, obviously before the accident, mm -hmm. um, you know, and even what you learned as a soldier, yeah. what you learned about yourself? Um, so... Obviously, I didn't know what I was doing either. You know, I was a civilian. I didn't know what war was. Uh, I thought I did because mm -hmm. we watch it. And I think people, that's a misconception is we think we know. Uh, and we don't know a lot of things until we actually experience things. And I didn't know until I got there. Um, so I got there and uh, right before uh, New Year's. We actually got to Kuwait right before Christmas and then we got to uh, Iraq. We drove up um, during New Year's. So... You know, that was my holiday. That's how we spent the holiday. Wow. And again, now this is my first time away from home, home in the United States uh, during a holiday. And I'm very family oriented. I love my family a lot. And gone. Home. Yeah, I can't even call home this time. You know, it's a lot different. And uh, my first experience was our drive from Kuwait to Baghdad. And uh, we were driving up and like there was a tire on the side of the road that was on fire. And to me, that's all that was and whatever, you know, I know we're in a war. So that's the stuff you see on TV is that tire that's burning. Um, but that's all it is to us when we see that. Uh, and I found out that nothing happened at that moment. But I found out that one of, one of the guys who had been there before said that's a marker. And that means usually there's an IED buried somewhere around here and they use that tire to mark so they can see when your vehicle drives by that they can um, they detonate the enemy the enemy okay. yeah detonate the wow. IED or uh, the the bomb so that was kind of a rude awakening like nothing is what it seems uh, there's a lot more to everything that you see uh, a, a can a soda can on the road that's not it might not just be a soda can it could be anything uh, a pothole isn't always just a pothole. Uh, it was it was strange. A bag, anything. So you start to look at things strategically, tactfully. Yeah, and you start seeing everything. Wow. Everything. Uh, stray dogs. You didn't know. Um, I mean, it wasn't You're common. You're more aware now. Yeah, everything. You had to be. Your head was on a swivel, and that's what they they said in the military as well. Keep your head on a swivel, and it was because you didn't know. Right. Yeah, you didn't know what was what, and uh, kind of opened your eyes to that. So we drove up to. Uh, Baghdad, and uh, that was my first real experience of a very small experience of what maybe was to lie ahead. Mm -hmm. And um, 
What did you learn about the enemy um, when you were fighting? Uh, it was hard to say who was the enemy. I think that was probably the biggest thing. We had people wave to us some days, and then days later, who knows if they were the ones that were you know, uh, blowing us up or shooting at us. We didn't know who the enemy was. Um, that was the hardest thing. So uh, the enemy could look like civilians. Oh, absolutely. They, they did civilians. look like civilians. Right. They were civilians. Uh, there was no army anymore. The army was defeated. Mm -hmm. The army was gone. Uh, we actually had guys who were dressed as army, Iraqi army, our friends, and killing people because that was their way of infiltrating into um, being able to kill people. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, it was again, head on a swivel. Every, nothing was as it seems. It was uh, impossible to know who was who. And half of the time, so I can't even tell you if we got shot at while we were there. I don't think we did. Maybe one time um, I might have had a guy take a couple pop shots at me. Until to this day, I don't even know if he did. Um, I just heard a crack. And I thought I smelled gun smoke, and I heard it twice, but I didn't see an impact spot. I was standing on the side of a hill. I didn't know, and I didn't even see. I didn't see where it would have come from. But my buddy who was standing there was like, "I think we're getting shot at." Okay. But to this day, I don't know if we did or not, and he doesn't know either. Um, like I said, we didn't hardly get shot at, and when we got hit with IEDs, which was often, there was never anybody there. There was nobody there to shoot back at, or it was. Yeah, it just happened. And then there's panic because is everybody okay? Uh, even if you're looking for that guy, where is he? Mm -hmm. There's trees around. There's canals around. That must have been difficult. It was difficult. And basically the first idea is when you get hit with an IED is get out of the kill area. You don't want to stay there because you could be being ambushed. Mm -hmm. And you want to get out of there quick. So when you get out of there, you're not finding anybody. It was um, a very difficult situation. But at the same time... Uh, there were people, there were Iraqis that we trusted, that I trusted anyways. Um, and that's what I wanted to know too, yeah. I mean, are you in talking with people in the yeah. communities? Yeah, we were taking over homes. We had no choice. Um, we would come in at night and infiltrate a house that we were going to take over and watch. And we couldn't keep the people in there. That was, uh, not, that was a rule that we were not allowed to do. We would tell them, please don't tell anybody that we're here. Right, whether that happened or not, it happened every single time. Yeah. Of course, they're going to tell sure. people. You know, there's people with big guns in their house. Mm -hmm. People are going to talk. Um, so it was never really hidden. We were never truly hidden, but um, we had to make friends with those people. I mean, we're invading their home, uh, whether they're good or bad. I don't know, um, but we're invading their home. And are we paying them off? Are we doing anything for them? I think there was stipends that they were getting some. I don't think all. I know a lot of areas were getting, um, uh, we would see new tractors, like big John Deere tractors driving down the road, going somewhere that we were giving them to farmers and okay. stuff like that. I don't know if that was for information or for what that what that was for. But, but in your role, you didn't experience any of, of that or... No, we that was um, that was a totally different job. Sure. Yeah, we were honestly our job. We were we were the war fighters. That was one of the things that we did. Uh, we were, and I don't I don't mean this the way I say it, but we were our job was the killing machines. Mm -hmm. But honestly, did I kill anybody while I was there? No, zero. I, mean, I never even shot at anyone. I shot in the direction of somebody just to scare them off, mm -hmm. but I never shot uh, anybody. I never killed anybody. So. 
Um, so it was the presence. It was just maintaining the peace where you could. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and if I, the ROE, the rules of engagement, were so strict, and uh, I mean, it was it was a hard war to fight. If you even really want to call it a war, I mean, people were dying, and and uh, but it was it might have been a war for them, but we were just there, and it was like we couldn't do anything. Yeah, and. Um, I don't get political about things. I'm not a political person. Um, but I, I believe we were there for the right reasons, and a lot of people do not. And I, and I understand their views. Um, but I believe we were there for the right reasons. I just believe it was not a very well-thought-out plan. I think that the, the plan was not a great plan. Um, and had it been, it could have had a better outcome. Better outcome, but I think the only outcome really in the end was we occupied Iraq for the next hundred years. Mm -hmm. That was the only way things were going to change. You need to change the kids and you need to change their kids and their kids. And and I also believe that we were um, helping them. Did they see that? Did they see us as helping them? No. Uh, Not all of them. Some did. But if I saw tanks rolling down my streets... And people with guns rolling down my streets, would I think they were helping me? I don't know. Yeah. And would I be out there trying to defend my country if I didn't like who was here? Probably. So do I blame them for everything that happened over there? No, I don't. Uh, and, you know, my buddies who were in my platoon will probably hear this and, you know, they'll probably be like, oh, Rick. But I, that's what I believe, mm-hmm. and and I will tell them that as well. And and I think they uh, respect my uh, my views sure. on things. But still, that's a tough one to talk about. It is. It is because it's we lost buddies, mm-hmm. and for them uh, to say, you know what, you're saying that it was okay that they killed our buddies. I'm not saying that because I miss them every day. Uh, they were best friends of mine. But at the same time, would I be doing the same thing here? If it was happening here, I probably would be. Right. I probably would be fighting back. Right. Because they don't even know. They didn't even know what we were doing there, really. Half of the people had no clue um, what we were doing there. And that's sad. Yeah, well, yeah. It was, I mean, it was a third world country. Half of the people didn't have TVs. And if they did have TVs, a lot of what was on the TV was propaganda. Right. And of course they didn't like us. Yeah. Um, but we did reach a few, and we did have a few friends. And... We had one group of friends that uh, would come to our vehicles. We sat on uh, OP, which is uh, observation post. Mm-hmm. And it was basically just watching a road, making sure nothing was happening. And it was a very bad area. Um, when we actually went there, we, the, um, the group that we uh, filled in for that was going back home, uh, I don't remember what unit it was, but they handed us their maps. And that road was outlined and it said, IED Alley, don't go there. Be careful. Like, aware, be, beware. And, right. like... Wow, here we are. And we were in that area, and there was a family that would come up to us quite often. And uh, eventually we left that area just because, I guess, they didn't see us accomplishing a whole lot there. So we left that area, and then we went back not long after that whole family was dead. And it was because they were talking to us. Mm -hmm. And they weren't telling us anything, but they were being friendly. Mm -hmm. That's it. They were being friendly. So, at the same time, I understand why people were doing If they didn't, they died. Right. People do some crazy things to stay alive. Sure. And that, saw it firsthand. Yeah, and it's it's a tough uh, it's a tough subject because I know not everybody's going to agree with me on uh, some of that stuff. But that's what you feel in your heart. You yeah, absolutely. That. You know, people. Um, I have a hard time when people say, you know, uh, 
just nuke them all. Um, how lucky would they have been to have been born here? You know, how many of them want to come here and live a life where they get to choose and be free? It's not their fault they were born no. in that place at and that time. I've seen leadership after I got out, I've seen some leadership say things about them. They're all this, they're all that. And I'm like, like how can generalize. you teach your soldiers that? Yeah, yeah. Because, no. You don't think that if you lived over there, you would want to come here? They were unfortunate to be living in a war zone their entire life. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, under a dictator. Like, I don't know. That's, that's a tough one. And, uh, you know, I'm a pretty neutral guy. I don't get into those types of things. But there's some things that I'm very passionate about. And that's one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're human beings in the end. It doesn't matter what um, else they are. They're that's human right. beings. Well, I, I, I understand, you know, I definitely feel, feel that. And, and I'm sure with your um, new venture here in, in, in bringing the, your motivational, inspirational mm-hmm. uh, talks to the world, you probably see that even more, or feel that even more, the human side. Yeah. Because people are people. It doesn't matter yeah. if you're here or in Iraq or, Absolutely. or, or in somewhere in Africa. Absolutely. It's... Um we got to care for everyone. Yeah. It doesn't you don't we don't just care for the people that are like us. That's right. That's ridiculous to think. Yeah. We got to care for everyone. Um, we have no idea what they've dealt with in their life. The guy that blew me up because there was a guy at the end of a wire who blew me up. Um, I have no idea what his life was like. Did he lose a brother? Did he lose a son, a daughter to an explode? I don't know. So how can I um, judge him? I can't. I can't. Rick, uh, if you can, take us back to September 1st, 2006. And um, if you could describe, if you can, both physically and emotionally, Mm -hmm. what what happened that day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's a story I tell often. And uh, it's a story I'm very proud of. Uh, It's it's the start of the new beginning for me. Uh, It's what shaped me into who I am now. I wouldn't be here if September 1st, 2006 didn't happen in a strange way, you know. Um, but I was, we were uh, loaded up into our vehicles that day just like every other day. Um, I was in my Bradley and I was a gunner at this point. I had moved up and my, our driver was also a gunner as well. We kind of switched back and forth. Some days I would still drive, sometimes he would gun. It all depended. And that day um, I'd, we had decided that I would be the gunner. And we had three Humvees in the convoy and two Bradleys. The three Humvees were leading the way. And we uh, took up the fifth position in the convoy, which was the last position. So, and, and as the last vehicle in a convoy, your job is rear security. So being in the turret, your tur- the, the gun is facing backwards. And on those roads out there, it's a lot of dirt and a lot of dust. You can't see anything through the site because the dust is just kicking up and you can't see anything. All you see is the dust. So it's not a very, it's not a fun position to be in. You're not seeing anything. And uh, so I don't know how long we were into the patrol, maybe an hour or two. And we decided to move up. We asked the other Bradley, hey, can we move up to the fourth position? So we did. We moved up to the fourth position. So my buddies that were in the vehicle with me were uh, Sergeant Montez, who was the uh, Bradley commander. He was uh, E5, sitting right next to me in the turret. And then uh, Special Andrew Lowe, who was uh, our driver. And uh, when after we moved up to that fourth vehicle, not 
probably not even a few minutes after that, uh, we got hit. We got hit with an IED, which um, I found out later on was a double stacked, uh, one. it was two 155 rounds, artillery rounds stacked. And it was a command wire that detonated it. So somebody sitting at the end of a wire with a battery, a uh, nine volt battery, just touched the battery to the wire and explode. Um, so we got hit and the IED went through the bottom of the vehicle, which the Bradley's a pretty armored vehicle, except for the bottom. The sides were extremely armored. The bottoms are not very armored. So it went through the bottom up into the turret where I was sitting and Montez was standing actually on the seat. Uh, so half his body was outside of the vehicle and uh, it hit our fuel tank. Yeah, and honestly, if it didn't hit our fuel tank, I don't think anything would have happened. I think we would have had a puncture in the bottom of our vehicle and, you know, maybe disabled a little bit, but I think we would have been able to roll. Um, it just happened to explode and puncture the tank, covering all of us in fuel. And how big is the tank? Are we talking? It's about 168 gallons. Okay. Of uh, and it's a JP8. It's a diesel-based jet propellant. Okay. Uh, I think it's 168 gallons. So it's a large. It's tank. a lot, and we always filled up before every single mission, so it was full. So we were doused, and uh, as soon as we were doused, we were also on fire, and. I knew first thing I had to do was just get out of the vehicle. First thing. Everything else deal with after. But get out now or you're not going to live. And that day when I got into the vehicle, we climbed, to get into the hatch, you climb, from in, you climb down from the top. And that day I didn't close the hatch cover. Uh, every other day that I climbed into the vehicle, I closed the hatch cover. I don't know why I didn't close the hatch cover. And there's a little tiny latch above um, my head that I would have had to hit to open up the hatch cover. And I really don't think I would have ever had that in the panic. Um, and Been able to. Yeah, see, right. I definitely couldn't. I mean, I knew where it was because I did. I used it every day. Mm -hmm. But in the madness of what was happening, I mean, I was on fire. My whole entire body was covered in flames. I doubt I would have ever found it. So I was able to climb out on top, which is um, basically a godsend right there. So I got through the, um, the hatch, standing on top of the turret, and then I had to get to the ground, and it's a long ways. Uh, first, I had to clear the edge of the vehicle. It's probably about a three-foot, maybe four-foot leap to get clear of the vehicle. Then it's about 13 feet to the ground. Um, so that was a big problem. I had to get to the ground, and it was gonna, I wasn't going to climb. I had to jump. And then the even bigger problem was the fact that I couldn't see. And I couldn't see because uh, my face was covered in flames and that was also covering my eyes. So I basically just had to jump, uh, take a leap of faith and hope that I would make it to the ground. And I did. Uh, I didn't make it to the ground. But when, I, when my feet hit the ground, I wasn't able to see the ground. So I couldn't brace myself for the impact of the fall and I broke my leg. Mm. And uh, breaking in breaking my leg, uh, I severed an artery. And that was what resulted in my below knee amputation. I have a prosthetic leg below my knee now. Uh, my leg basically died and they ended up amputating uh, like I think four or five days later. But when I landed on the ground, um, I did what we were taught to do. Everyone was taught to do if they ever caught on fire. What every three-year-old knows, really, stop, drop, and roll. Right. And that's what I did. And I couldn't put the fire out because I actually had too much fuel covering my body. Really... Uh, there wasn't a whole lot that would have put the fire out at that point. And at that point, my buddy still thought I was in the vehicle. I was just more fire on the side of the vehicle. They didn't even know that was me because there was, there was so much fire. The vehicle was so engulfed in flames. 
and uh, eventually, I re- once I realized I couldn't put the fire on, like, I mean, what else am I supposed to do? I gave up. I couldn't stand up when my leg was broken. I couldn't, like, run and yell for help and hopefully somebody had a fire extinguisher. I couldn't do anything. So I, I, I really did. I gave up. Uh, I laid on my back, stared up in the sky, and I gave up. I didn't feel any pain. I think that's probably why I gave up. It was. And when you say you gave up, were you ready to die? Oh, yeah, done. Ready to die. I mean, I think staring up in the sky and, you know, just, this is it. It's game over. Um, what else am I going to do? Nobody knows where I am. Uh, another 10 seconds, probably. How would have I gone? It wasn't going to be long. And I think the fact that I didn't feel the pain made it easier. Mm-hmm. Because, all right, this is kind of calming, even though there's some crazy things going on around me and I'm on fire. Um... It was easy to decide that in that moment. Because really, what's the point in trying? What else am I going to do? Right. Uh, and eventually, for some reason, um, people can point to whatever they want to point it to. Uh, there was nobody else around me, but I fell into a canal. And I decided to roll in one direction. And I fell into a canal that was there. And I'll tell you, that was God. Uh, that was the hand of God. And my faith, I've struggled in faith many times, but... You can't tell me anything else about that moment. Because I didn't even know which direction I was rolling in. I could have been rolling back to the burning vehicle. Right. Um, I didn't even know there was a canal there. I had no idea because in the sight of the Bradley, I'm looking a mile in the distance or half a mile in the distance. Right next to you. No clue what's right next to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I rolled and I fell into a canal. And the canal had just enough water in it and uh, put the fire out. But the canal was also disgusting. It was filthy. And um, the water saved my life, but it also it also almost killed me. I ended because up because of disease, or I had ended up with a fungus yeah. on my hands. Um, that's why my hands are as bad as they are uh, from the fire as well. But also from the, in the hospital, they had to cut my palms off hmm. uh, twice. And the third time, they they said if it happened again, if it happened a third time, they would actually cut my hands off because it was a fungus that spread really fast and it kills. So. Um, that water ended up with uh, respiratory cholera as well, which is something that's almost unheard of here in the states. But yeah, the water that almost, uh, or the water that saved my life almost killed me as well. Yeah. Pretty, uh, pretty crazy to think that. And we sometimes um, will talk about that. You know, uh, if you're on fire and you're about to die, and somebody and all they have next to them is a bucket of filthy, disgusting water, are you going to use it? Of course, right. doesn't matter. You had to save their life, and then you'll deal with the rest later. So I was able to fall into that canal, and eventually a couple of my friends found me. Um, one of the guys from the vehicle in front of me, the Bradley, or sorry, the vehicle behind us because we had switched, uh, Sergeant Jackson, he found me. He was the Bradley commander of that vehicle. And then uh, one of my buddies, uh, Sergeant uh, Anthony Venets, he was in one of the Humvees in front of us, and he was attached to us uh, as a sniper. Yeah, infantry sniper. We we took I think usually about three of them with us on missions, and he was the other one that grabbed me. One of them grabbed under my arms. Well, actually, first one of them grabbed my vest, my eye vest. And as soon as they grabbed my vest, um, he lifted and it disintegrated. It broke. Um, and then the other one grabbed under my arms and or under my legs, and that was the first time I felt pain because he grabbed my leg, the broken leg. Okay. And that's why I said you got to grab up higher because he grabbed like my ankles and. Uh, and you're conscious through all this. I remember it all. Um, a little later, things start to get fuzzy. Um, I had to be filled in, but this is all this is all firsthand. 
Nobody told me about this. I remember this part. And uh, I also remember the flame. I could see the flames on the side of the hill from the, the path that I left. Um, I left fuel and fire. And really, I don't know how that filthy canal wasn't on fire as well. Maybe it was. I can't remember that part of it. But they eventually got me to the top of the canal. And um, that's when I knew that things were going to be... My, my future was going to be crazy if I lived. Uh, I didn't know if I would live. I knew that my injuries were bad enough. I knew I was just on fire for probably about 15, 20 seconds, fully engulfed. And I didn't know if I would live. But if I did, I knew things were going to be bad. Um, I, I think I was sitting up at that point, and I could see um, my face. And I didn't need a mirror to see my face because it was hanging from my chin. And I could see my hands, and uh, they call it degloving. Uh, my hands were so burnt that all the skin had come off, and they were, my hands were hanging off of my fingertips. The skin was hanging off my fingertips. And uh, that's when I knew that, man, I might not live. And, man, if I do live, this is going to be a crazy road yeah. ahead. Um, and actually, my buddy, uh, Sergeant Benetz, who was standing over me, um, helping me get through it all, uh, I asked him how bad it was. How bad the situation was and uh, as a good friend would he lied yeah. and he said it's not that bad yeah. and I actually said to him I said I'll never be as ugly as you are <laughs> and I, in the, the moment I think you know them see, they knew I had a sense of humor to begin with and seeing that my sense of humor was still, still there yeah. that maybe you know maybe I was going to be okay mm-hmm. um, it wasn't over yet there was still some fighting to do um, and I tell that story and I talk about uh, Sergeant Finette's, uh uh, and then Sergeant Vanessa was killed in Afghanistan. Uh, he ended up going special forces. And uh, it was probably about four years later, three three years later that he was killed. Oh, that's Pretty awful. crazy, yeah. Pretty crazy. And the other two that were in your... Uh, yep. Did, so, did they survive? Um, so we got in the helicopter eventually. Um, Sergeant Montez, Sergeant, or Special Slow, we were all in the, in the helicopter. And I remember uh, Sergeant Montez, when we were still on the ground, was angry. Because he was the leader of the vehicle. He was in charge of the vehicle, so he was blaming himself. And nothing he could have done, nothing Lowe could have sure. done, nothing I could have done. Really, there was nothing. There were three vehicles in front of us that, it didn't. that ran over it. Right. And whoever was detonating it wanted to hit the Bradley. That was it. Um, so he was really angry, and I remember that. And when we got in the helicopter, he, uh, all, he was younger than me first. He joined when he was 18. Okay. So he was younger, but he was a higher rank because he had been in longer than I had mm-hmm. uh, two or three years longer and uh, I remember the entire while we were in the helicopter all he was worried about was me he he kept telling uh, them to give me the morphine like give Rick morphine give Yerish morphine and that's what I remember and I remember him saying that I don't remember if I said anything back or anything uh, I can't remember the conversation exactly and was he saying that to take away any pain you may have had yeah 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 he um so the I don't know the severity of the injuries that he had right away, but my buddy told me they were terrible. Hmm. They were horrible. And and they were worried about you. Yeah, uh, I think his were worse than mine, and uh, he ended up succumbing to his injuries um, seven days later in the hospital. Um, I don't know if I got the real reason how it happened or why it happened, but I was told that, uh, and I don't remember even who told me this. It could have been a buddy of mine. That's why I don't know if it was um, 
the, the legit reason, but they said he had compartment syndrome internally, and uh, he had swelling inside, and basically it was shutting down his organs, and uh, eventually they had to make the decision. So now you, they need to get you to safety, yeah. and what happens next? Uh, so I go to the hospital in Baghdad. I believe that was the first place we went. Helicopters took us there, and I remember them pulling me out of the uh, chopper, and I remember the chopper uh, had, it was like a carousel inside. It was a th- this three, I don't know how many it would carry, but you put the gurney and then you turned it. Okay. And another gurney went in and then it was two layers, a top and a bottom. And I remember that. And I remember them taking me off the helicopter and putting me on a stretcher. And I remember going through like two doors and I remember a light above me, like a hospital light above me. And uh, I remember a nurse our doctor, female, standing above me and putting a needle in me and game over for a long time. I don't remember much and I can't even tell you how long it was that I really remember things. But yeah, that was the the hospital that uh, I went to in Baghdad. That's the last you, you remember? Last thing I remember. And then where do they take you from there? From there, um, I believe we went to Balad, which is uh, one of the main airports. Still in Iraq. Still in Iraq. Um, And then from Balad, we went to Germany. And that was uh, where the big hospital is, our main hospital uh, on an army base. Or actually, I think it was Air Force Base. I went there, and I don't remember. This is all secondhand, but this is from my parents, so it's all very uh, accurate. And I know that when I was in Germany, my parents were at home. And they had gotten the phone calls about what happened to me. But I was in Germany quick, very fast. But when I was in Germany, um, they got the phone call saying, we don't know if he's going to make it. So they were going to Walmart to get their pictures taken so that they could get their uh, passport. They didn't have their passport. And it was the quick, this was the quickest way to do it. So pretty crazy now. Um, all of the things I talk about are pretty simple. Except when I talk about my parents um, or even my friends you know, getting that call. I can't imagine what I, how I would feel getting that call about a friend or a family member of mine. And of course, that's their worst fear. You oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, and sometimes my mom and dad wouldn't hear from me for weeks. But that was a good thing. They knew that if they weren't hearing anything, that I was still okay. So, uh, when they got that phone call saying, we're not sure if he's going to make it, you need to come to Germany. And that was because they didn't know if I'd ever get on the plane to come back to the States. Because Germany wasn't going to be able to treat me fully. They could do some uh, some early on stuff. But you needed to be here. I needed to be here. Yeah. San Antonio, Texas, uh, Brook Army Medical Center is the best burn unit in, I'll say, the world. I don't know if it truly is, but I'm here. Yeah. Um, but while I was in Germany... And they said, you know what, I don't know if we're going to get him on the plane. He's not stable enough to make that long flight. I uh, said the only way he's getting on that plane is if the stars line up right. And uh, my parents got the phone call, and they said the stars lined up. And we wow. got him on the plane. So, obviously still not out of the woods. Right. Long ways from out of the woods. But at least I was getting to um, the burn center. And the, the airplane couldn't wait forever because there was other guys. Montez was on that plane. Uh, my buddy Lowe was on that pe- plane. And there were other injuries as well. They couldn't wait for just me. Mm-hmm. So they had to send that plane. So it, la- it uh, made it to San Antonio. Uh, I don't know if they took me from the plane on a helicopter or an ambulance to the actual hospital after that. I had, my parents would know, but I'm not sure. 
And um, I don't remember any of it, really. I know that my mom said uh, first time she saw me, uh, she didn't even know it was me. She said the only reason she knew it was me was because of my teeth. Mm-hmm. That that was the only recognition she had because um, I was so swollen. Mm-hmm. My whole entire body, my, my head was the size of a pumpkin. Mm-hmm. They said, uh, that's that's the, the hard part, you know, imagining it from a parent's from perspective, a parent's especially perspective. now that I'm a parent. Yes. yes. Uh, now that I'm dealing with that, um, that's a tough one. Mm-hmm. So, I was in the hospital, uh, I would say I was out of it for at least uh, two weeks or three weeks, I think in an induced coma, a medically induced coma they put me in. And that was because of the pain. I guess there's like two choices they can make. They can keep me out of the coma and make me work through the pain and maybe have a better outcome later on with like movement of arms and limbs and stuff, or leave me in the coma, not having to deal with the pain and kind of let that other stuff go and not worry about it right now. And that's what I think they decided to do. So it was in that... Did your parents help make that decision? I'd imagine so, yeah. They made the decision to amputate my leg Mm -hmm. uh, four or five days in, and they tried some things to save it. They took a vein out of my left leg and put it into my right, uh, and it just wasn't taking. And I've seen guys who have had similar injuries who they did save their leg. And then three or four years down the road, they have it amputated mm-hmm. because it never worked Sorry. right. Yeah. And thank God they made that decision. I, I can't imagine four years down the road saying, okay, now take my right. leg. Right. No way. Right. So thankfully, it happened then. Um, and for a long time, I lived in my own reality, I call it, because the world that I was seeing was not the world that I was actually in. I was never really in a hospital room. I was never... Um, around doctors. People were around me, but I didn't see them as doctors. Um, Sometimes I was still in Iraq. I remember telling my parents one day, uh, watch out out for that van. I was in my room, Mm -hmm. but I saw a van. And that was one of the things that um, drove around a lot over in Iraq was these vans. And like I said, back to Iraq, our head was on a swivel, you noticed everything. So this van was suspicious to me, and I would tell my parents, watch out for that van, or something I would feel a... a dog rubbing up against my arm, walking around me, and like telling my parents, like, why is there a dog in here? You know, get that dog out of here. Just like weird world, and a lot of it was the medication. That's what I was gonna say. Yeah, the I was on ketamine, okay. which is um, crazy, and I, I can't. And yeah, I can't. Like I can't understand why somebody would choose to take something like that. Uh, I lived in that world for a long time, and it was awful. How it long? was awful. Uh, I was probably in that world for about two and a half to three months. And uh, I ended up in ICU for three and a half months. And then I was in a step-down unit for two and a half. And I remember pretty much all of the last two and a half, maybe last three, three and a half months. But um, that reality that I lived in was, uh, some of it was very disturbing. They would um, put me on a tilt table. And I think that was partially to get some weight bearing on my leg. So I'd lay flat on a uh, table and then they would tilt me up. And they would strap me down on it. So it was a little bit to get the um, weight bearing on my leg. And also so that I didn't get pneumonia. A little bit of movement. And get rid of that fluid. And uh, in my mind, a couple of times, I remember one time, I have no idea why this was in my head. But I was strapped to the front of a car. Hmm. The hood of a car, chained, 
to the hood of a car, and the back end was on hooked to the back end of the car was hooked to a chain, and they were lifting the back end of the car up until I was. I have no idea hmm. why. And also, one thing I didn't know is I didn't know my leg was gone. I had no idea. Uh, I knew that I was only standing on my left leg, but I had no idea that's because my they amputated my leg. They didn't tell me, right. and they didn't want that right. because I was already dealing with a lot. But I remember um, in tears asking them, please let me put my other leg down because this leg hurt so bad and it was starting to buckle. And But they were doing the right thing. Right. They really were. And I can't imagine how hard that was for them and my parents to not be able to tell me why they won't let me put my leg down. And it, you know, just as you're telling the story, I, it, I, you know, I think about the medical professionals yeah. that are with you every stage of this. Yeah, I mean, they are true. They're angels. Unsung heroes. Yeah. I mean, oh, absolutely. Those are uh, the real heroes, in my opinion. But people tell me all the time, they're like, "I couldn't have done what you do." Okay, but I probably couldn't have done what you do. I couldn't have done what they do. Hey, we're all built differently, and there's no possible way I could have done what those nurses and doctors did. The rooms that they had us in, I don't know what the temperature was at, but they had to keep it high. And like around 100 degrees because we didn't have any skin. So we were freezing. I was always cold. Every All these burn patients are freezing. And they had to keep... So they're working in rooms. Warm in there. Yeah. The 100 degree rooms every day. And they're working hard in 100 degree rooms. And they're lifting you. They're moving you. It's... How resilient are our bodies? I'm oh, it's amazing. That's it's amazing. Uh, and also the, the world that we live in now, uh, where the medical field is, mm-hmm. 50 years ago, I wouldn't be alive. Right. And uh, my dad actually said that to one of the doctors. My dad, I think he was going off of like perseverance, like saying to the doctors about me, like, there's no way I could get through that. And I think my dad was saying that to say how strong Rick is. Right. But the doctor was like, no, you, you wouldn't have. Because first of all, your age, and second of all, the medical field back then just wouldn't have been able to handle this. Mm-hmm. So I'm lucky that it happened when it did. And I had a lot of setbacks. Um, there was a couple times that I, one time I know that my kidney stopped working. So they put me on dialysis. And um, the dialysis machine actually stopped working as well. And uh, then my kidney started working on their own again. Just some really crazy things yeah, happened. Miracles along the way. Miracles. Um, I, I don't even know what to call them. It's crazy, um, crazy, crazy things. My grandpa who passed when I was young, and I'm not a real spiritual person, aura, all that stuff. I don't I don't know how much I buy. Um, but my grandpa was there, and I can't tell you how I even know that. I hadn't seen my grandpa, and I think he passed when I was seven years old. I hadn't seen my grandpa in forever. But one thing when I was in Iraq, my dad had sent me a 50 cent piece. And that was from my grandpa. My grandpa gave it to my dad, and my dad gave it to me. And I think all my brothers have them. Um, It was a 50 cent piece, I believe. I could be wrong. I want to say it was 1969, and it was the last year they made them silver, or something like that. But they were very special to our family. And I carried that thing on mission. Every single mission. We had a left breast pocket. I put it in my left breast pocket, closest to my heart. And I, I hadn't seen my grandpa in 17 years. And I had that with me, but I didn't think about him every single day. But for some reason in the hospital, he was there. And I can't figure out why to this day. 
you felt him with you. Yeah, I remember one time uh, there was a light in the room, and I saw. I feel ridiculous telling the story because I don't believe it myself. And uh, there was a light in the room, and the light in the room, I don't know what the light in the room was. I have no idea. It could have been something shiny. I have no clue. But the light in the room was him. And I called him Jaji. He was my Jaji. That's uh, Polish for grandpa. And uh, it was him. And whenever I heard the, because I was so out of it, I was still taking things in. Mm -hmm. They always mentioned the word donor. Donor, donor, donor. And donor sites are the skin, the good skin that they take to okay. place over the bad, okay. the burned. And whenever I heard the word donor, for some reason, I felt like my grandpa, my Jaji, was giving me things. Like, he was donating things to me. Hmm. Again, no clue why. Um, my dad would ask me every day. My parents are amazing, first of all. I could only yeah, imagine. They're amazing. And uh, my dad was in the room, and uh, he would ask me every day. What day is it, and where are you? Just kind of to get my brain moving, working. And every day I was wrong. Every day. I had no clue where I was. I, I remember saying Michigan once because I was cold. And Michigan's really cold, I guess. I've never been to Michigan. I know it's cold. So I said I was in Michigan. I've never been to Michigan. No, I can't figure that one out. But one day um, I said, where are you? And I said, I said, the shipyard's in Philly. I've never been to a shipyard. I didn't even know if there's a shipyard in Philly. How about your grandpa? My grandpa worked at a shipyard in Philly. What the heck? My dad didn't tell me that until like three years ago. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm like, how? He's like, I just didn't even think about it. Like, I don't know what I believe, but something. Oh, come on. Something was there. Um, pretty crazy. Well, those situations definitely test our faith, right? Yeah, oh yeah, and I went back and forth with faith. And uh, one of my best friends in the hospital was my chaplain, um, um, Chaplain Snyder, David Snyder. And he, um, I don't know, he just was there for me. And not just me, my parents as well. And uh, I'll never forget, at the beginning, I couldn't see anything because my eyes... Um, they had so much gunk in them. They, they were putting um, solutions and gels and stuff in them because I couldn't close my eyes because of the scarring. So when your eyes are open forever, they're going to dry out and they're going to go bad. You're going to ruin your eyes. So they kept those things on there. And I would also have goggles on as well to keep the moisture in. So I couldn't see anything. And honestly, for a long time, I thought I was blind. I just believed I couldn't see. I don't think anybody ever told me that I'm wearing goggles and... So I thought I was blind, and I remember the chaplain coming in and talking to me, and I couldn't ever see him, though. And finally, they cleared the gunk out of my eyes and took the things off, and my sight slowly came back, so it was still very blurry. And I remember him coming in one time, and I was like, what the heck? Like, you guys have been allowing this guy in my room? He's like six foot seven. Like 320 pounds. I'm like, what is Not going on? Not what I expected at all. <laughs> the guy that was getting me through so much. It was huge. Yeah. And uh, became one of my uh, really good friends. Uh, somebody I turned to when things were difficult. He was the one that broke a lot of news to me. Um, like when uh, they finally wanted to tell me that Montez had passed. They didn't tell me that early on. They told me that 
quite a bit late. late. And they know, right? They don't. They don't want to <coughs> feed you too much information. Yeah, they don't. Um, they knew that I was dealing with a ton sure, already. Sure. Personally. Yes. They don't want to add to that. Yeah. Um. So I remember the chaplain coming in, and actually a couple of my buddies, uh, who I was in the army with. So that was another nice thing, being in San Antonio, and being stationed at Fort Hood. So when they got back home from Iraq, they went back to Fort Hood, which is only about two hours away from my hospital. So they would come visit. They would come visit. That's nice. And uh, they came in one day with the chaplain and sat down with me. And uh, they said, uh, Montez didn't make it. And I said, I know. I knew. I don't know how I knew. Um, I remember early on I asked a lot, how's Montez? And the answers that I got... They just didn't seem right. They weren't right. You started putting two and two together. Yeah. yeah. Well, I remember I asked a general. There was a, we had a lot of higher-ups that would come through and, you know, just say hi. And uh, show their support and, you know, job well done and all that stuff. And he, uh, one of the generals came in and I'm like, if I'm going to get an answer from anybody, it's going to be this general. And uh, I said, how's Montez? Or where's Montez? Or something like that. And he said, he's back home in California. He didn't even tell you. No, but he was telling me the truth. He was back home in California. That's right. Just, you know, they buried him. Yeah. Um, I don't think I took that as that at all. Mm -hmm. I don't, actually, that's just coming to me now. That's the first time I've ever said that. Because it didn't register until now that that's what he was, that's what he meant. But he didn't lie. But he didn't lie. Yes, that's exactly it. He didn't lie. And... I think up until now, I was imagining him lying. That was, it was a lie. But it wasn't. He was saying that. He was back in California. and uh, But I knew. Not at that moment, but I think after so much time, I, Lowe would come in. Uh, Specialist Lowe, who was in the vehicle with me, he would come in and visit me once in a while. And he didn't really say, and Montez never came in to visit. So I knew something. Something was up. Um, so, yeah, he, uh, he broke the news with the guys. And... You know, I wasn't surprised. He's the one that broke the news about my leg. Okay. And like all that stuff. And in the end, uh, I was okay. And he actually said, he said, uh, when I broke the news to you about your leg, you said, well, I guess I'll be walking out of here with five toes. And it's because I knew. Now, if they surprised me with that right. three months earlier, that wouldn't have been my response, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. They waited for the right time to uh, be able to tell me. So, wow, you're, you're talking about so much. I, I, I cannot wrap my mind around what you were going through. I don't think anyone can without No, and I, sometimes I can't. Yeah. Um, so, how did, you, how did you get through this emotion? I know you had the chaplain. That, uh, that, that, that helped, I'm sure. Sure. Um, what did you, did, did you do anything to it prepare was, yourself or emotionally? No, it was other people. I mean, how do you prepare yourself? You don't. Um, a week before my injury, or a couple weeks before my injury, when I was still in Iraq and sitting in a tent, um, actually, which was made by Eureka, <laughs> which said the label Binghamton, New York. I couldn't believe we were in this That's tent, it. and there's a label Binghamton, New York. And uh, I was talking to a buddy of mine, and I said, if I ever lose my leg, it's a dead serious conversation. I said, if I ever lose my leg, I want you to shoot me. That's what I told him. So, like you say, how did that you prepare? That was your mentality at that point. Yeah, how did you prepare yourself? I didn't. Right, I, right. I, I didn't even think I could live my life without a leg, but there's a lot of people that believe that. And that's what was happening over there. People were losing limbs, and I didn't believe that I could live my life 
that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't seen many people with prosthetic legs doing things. Mm-hmm. Now I have. I see it all the time. But I had no clue. I was a, in school. I was captain of a football wrestling team. I was an athlete, and now I'm a soldier and a leader. If you, I lose my leg, who am I? You know, and that's kind of the way I felt about it. I'm like, just put me out of my misery. That's how I felt. And uh, he told me that later on. But that's just it. I don't think any of us really know what we can get through until we have no choice. We can prepare ourselves in a, some way by saying, you know what? We can get through anything. We have a positive outlook. Yeah, absolutely. In, in every aspect of life, you carry that positive outlook. I understand that now. And I know that if I go through something again that's difficult, I'm going to get through it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get through it. But in the hospital as well, I didn't have that mental toughness, I don't think. Am I here because of that? Maybe a little. But I don't know. It was people around me. That fed me positive. Um, my parents would never allow negative things into my room. And I think that was a huge help. When I was having my leg amputated, they didn't want that in the room. They didn't want anybody saying, we're going to amputate. So let's talk about this outside. Um, oh man, he has a fever of 105. Let's outside. Anything Good negative. Time. They didn't even know if I was with it enough. But... They didn't know, and that's the thing. They wanted to make sure it wasn't sure. going into my brain. And at this point, are they living there now? Yeah, they're living there for uh, the day they got. They actually got there before I did. Hmm. They got to the hospital before I did. And uh, they lived in a place uh, called the Guest House, which is on the base right across the street. It's a little hotel, basically. And uh, yeah, they were there every day. And they lived in the waiting room. And the waiting room was their second home at that point. Um, one of the groups there called Operation Comfort, you know, at one point it was just a waiting room, that's all. But I think they realized that some of these parents are pretty much living here. Yeah. Um, so they redid the entire room, made it cozy. And nice. So it didn't look like a hospital More anymore. Yeah, and I'm still very close with that organization because they've done a lot for me and my family. But yeah, I don't, honestly, I don't know how mentally tough I was. I really don't. I think, yes, I had to be some to get through what I went through. But there were times where if they stopped giving me my medication, I'd been okay with it. If they just pulled the plug, I would have been okay with it. I'm sure. I didn't think, and then there were some points that I'm like, man, I gotta leave this place eventually and go out in public looking the way I do. I would have been okay with them taking me away. I really would have. But. I had amazing people in my life who wouldn't allow that to happen. Right. And they got me through that. And then the world of sweethearts and heroes. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's what a sweetheart is. The people that give hope. So uh, Sweethearts are carriers of hope. And hope to us uh, is hold on possibilities exist. Many times that I've gi- given up hope. But it was those sweethearts that came into my world to give me that hope back. And help me get through those situations um, that I can't get through on my own. Many times. First time I saw my face, I saw it in a computer screen on accident. Because again, just like my leg, they didn't want me to see my leg. They didn't want me to see what I looked like. So they would actually, they covered the mirrors in my room with old pictures of me and my friends and my family. So they didn't want me to see my face. And I understood why. Now I do. Um, But when I saw my face for the first time, it was like, done. Leave me alone. 
And I, and I think I actually said the words, I don't care if I live or die. And that was to my parents and to my doctors. So at that time, I mean, was there any point in time, because you're so positive, was there any point in time where you went into, like, early depression? Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah. And how long did that last? I'm, I, it was spotty, too. It was there, and then it wasn't. There was good days, and there was bad days. Mm-hmm. And uh, the good days were more when I wasn't thinking. When I, when I would lay there and I would think, especially at night, uh, I couldn't sleep. So I'd watch it. There was only one show on, I swear, at night. And that was Spongebob. <laughs> which was a lot of Spongebob. Awful. Awful. <laughs> but nothing is on at like 3 and 4 in the morning. Right. So, and the TV wasn't very accessible for me. I, it was one of those ones that hovered in front of you and my hands didn't work. So when you push the button, the TV moves. So I can't push the, and you have to put quite a bit of pressure on it to put, mm-hmm. hit the button. So I'd have to call somebody. So I would just leave it on the station. Uh, which is also another station I left it on was the Chapel Channel from the the, um, uh, the the hospital itself, and one of the stories huge help. Uh, there was a, a Vietnam soldier, uh, Dave Reaver, was his name and oh, is his name, and he was um, burned really bad, and it was his testimony, and uh, there was some really difficult things to hear in it, but then some amazing things, and I think. Those um, on the Chapel Channel was perfect for me to watch. Gave you strength. Oh, absolutely. I saw that. You know what? And that was the biggest help out of anybody um, around me. It was somebody who had already been through it. Yeah. Him and other people who came in to visit and said, you know what? You're, you going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That was the biggest um, help for me mm-hmm. was that. But yeah, depression at night, I mean, I would lay there. And then it seemed like at 5 in the morning is when I would finally fall asleep. And during the night, I was, I don't know what I was going through. I don't know if it was withdrawal from them taking me off medication. I don't know. But I would move my arms constantly, and I'd kick my legs, my muscles. My muscles were went from strong to gone really fast. And now I have to build them back. And I think the feeling in my muscles was it was awful. The people that talk about restless leg syndrome, and my whole body had that. Mm-hmm. And at night, that's all I would do until like five in the morning. I'd finally fall asleep, and then like six thirty, the doctors would come in. So my sleep schedule, I'd doze off here and there during the day. But you didn't have any steady sleep. No, and depression was. Uh, I mean, they said at night they say you're ready for your cocktail, and that was probably fourteen different types of pills that I'd have to take. Um, for all that stuff, anxiety, depression, sleep, itch, um, everything, and stuff I don't even know what that was, right. uh, pain, everything. And I didn't mention this, but I said there was no pain in the beginning when I was on the ground. There was a, plenty of pain uh, when I was in the hospital, um, excruciating, and sometimes even more excruciating than the pain I was dealing with was hearing the pain of the other people in other rooms, mm-hmm. especially when you went in the shower. The screaming or the... The showers were the worst because you shared... There was bays, but other people were being showered as well. And when you're being showered, it's also when they're scraping your skin. And it was awful. That was awful. Um, But again, it it goes back to the doctors, how they could deal with it. And we talk about post-traumatic stress. How could they not have it? After dealing with the things they've dealt with, um, I'm very lucky to not have it. And I can't tell you why. That I don't. But I don't. 
Well, and maybe it has something to do with your outlook. You know, maybe it has to do with the things that you've been able to accomplish and achieve and overcome. Yeah. That 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 helps you in that in that regard. And again, I'll say it's the people that were around me. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people say you don't give enough self enough credit, and I don't know if I deserve that credit. Uh, basic people came to me and helped me get through situations. Now I've seen people who didn't have that, and they don't end up happy, positive, because who was there for them to help them get through situations? Right. And I think you see that in kids as well. When they go home to a family that doesn't give a crap, right? You know, how can how are they going to turn out to be positive? And mm-hmm. we're we're um, we're so much like our surroundings. You know, who's around us? Who are those people that uh, are in our lives? Who are those influences? Our family, our yeah, friends. Yeah, absolutely. And some of these people that were in the hospital didn't have that. And some of them also, some of these kids, they go home and they don't have it at all. They've got no support. Yeah. So where, where are they supposed to get that positive outlook from? Rick, uh, what does national pride mean to you? Um, so, I mean, we talked about 9-11. And the horrors of the day, but then the national pride after. Um, when we said, you know what? Put everything aside. Put all of our differences aside. <clears throat> Put your arm around your fellow man and care about him. And be all on the same page for once. That's what I saw. And that's what I would love to get back to. Um, because people will never forget what happened on 9-11. It'll never be forgotten. And it should never be forgotten. But we already forgot about the good things that came out of it. And uh, that's, that's, a, that's a problem. But that's the national pride that I'm looking for again. And I want it because we are so divided right now in, in so many ways. I hope we can recover from it. And I believe we can because I know that we're strong. But it's going to take us a lot of time and a lot of change to get there. And I'm still proud of my country. I am still so lucky to be in this country. Um, to say the views that I have, many countries you can't say anything. Uh, I'm so lucky to have those things. So I am still very proud of my country. But I know what we're capable of. Because I've seen it. And why do we wait for tragedy? Why do we wait for tragedy to say, okay, now we're going to do it? But before that, we don't care. We don't care about each other. We don't care about our fellow human. Um, we need to get back to that. But yes, uh, national pride for me is something that um, I think about often. And I see uh, such... Uh, uh, there's such a split mm-hmm. in, every, in so many aspects of our lives. And it's unnecessary, really. But I want to get back to that national pride where everybody would help. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you are. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what religion you are. Um, I want to get back to that national pride. Or maybe not even back to that because maybe we've never been there before. Mm-hmm. But I want to get there. And if I thought it was impossible, I wouldn't be doing the things that I'm doing. I truly believe that it's possible. There's this part in our brain that needs to be switched and realize that... Um, this hate and stuff that we show it's not necessary we don't need it you don't need it 
Oh. Right. And it's touching one person at a time, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because that one person that you touch is going to affect somebody else as well. Right. It's that chain reaction that um, you'll get in the end. Yeah. So can you make any sense of what's happening um, in the NFL with the players taking a knee at the national anthem? Um, I'm, I'm personally having a hard time following the narrative. I, I really don't know what it stands for. I'm hearing yeah. different views, uh, et cetera. Um, I don't know what their why is. You know, what is, what is the reason? Um, are, are you able to make any sense of it? And does it offend you in any way? Um, we'll start with the last part. Am I offended? No, I'm not. Uh, I mean, in some ways, th- th- that's why we have freedom of yeah, speech, right? Yeah, it is. Do I wish they would stand? Yeah, I do. Um, but am I offended? No, I'm not. And this is a, it's a tough subject because I even find myself going back and forth on different aspects of it. And I haven't come out with a clear feeling on it. I don't know. Um, I'm frustrated with it because I see it happening all over. And in the end, so I know why it started. I mean, it was the equality. Um, it was uh, uh, police officers. Black Lives like, Matter. Yeah, Black Lives Matter. Um, so I know why it started. But in the end, when you kneel for the national anthem, it's disrespectful. And I don't care what your main focus is. But guess what? Guess what disrespect gets you? A national stage. If they kneeled before the national anthem, would we be talking about this at all? No. They got the stage. So here's... So do I think it's disrespectful? I do. And I think that everyone will eventually realize that. I do. And I think that they will find other avenues to uh, fight this inequality. And in the end, this might be one of the best things that's happened to us. And kid, there's lots of schools that kids don't even say that, or kids don't even say the Pledge of Allegiance anymore. They don't. They're not required to. Which, again, is fine. You shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to do anything. Um, but there's a lot of schools that don't. The kids don't say it. And in the end, I think and I hope that these players will bring that issue. Because right now, they're saying, we're doing this for a reason. And then once that we solve that, they're going to start standing up again, and they're going to tell their story of why they're standing up. Because it's respectful. And obviously, they have a huge impact on kids. Yes. Because what are kids doing right now? They're kneeling for the national anthem. But I think eventually, if this is just a hiccup that we have to deal with for a little while, finally. And sometimes that's what it takes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... That's what it will. And guess what? If, if, if we can fix some inequality problems in this nation, then whatever. I'm fine with it. Right. Um, but yeah, it's a, t- it's a tough subject because, I, like I said, I don't know where exactly I sit. I know I see my friends who, some of my friends who are very angry about it. Um, and then I see some of my friends who are on the exact opposite side of that. But um, I think in the end, I can only hope for a positive outcome. And that's, you know, that national pride right. that you just mentioned, building back up to that. I would love to see every single kid in schools standing for the Pledge of Allegiance. I would love to see everybody in the stands at a football game singing the national anthem. And That's coming together. Yeah, yeah. And, and okay, forget the pride of the country. It's coming together. It's being Pride warm. for ourselves. Yeah. And our, and our friends Absolutely. and family. And We're teams. standing together. Yes. Um, so... I think in the end, this actually might have a positive outcome. Again, 
I always look for a positive. And I truly believe that we'll find it in this one. Along the way somewhere, it'll be there. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Um, we often uh, hear about finding meaning and purpose and joy through tragic situations uh, and obstacles. Uh, can you speak about this and um, when in the process of, of your recovery did you find this sense of happiness, purpose? Was there an aha moment where you said, okay, this is yeah. what I'm going to do? Um, kind of. Or was it gradual? It was, it was kind of. There was, was a moment that uh, things changed. Things kind of got set into motion. But uh, you always hear people say everything happens for a reason. And I don't believe that. I don't. And I don't believe Why? that in one sense. You have to make it happen for a reason. You have to make it for... So this happened to me. I got blown up. And if I sat in the, my room the rest of my life and didn't want to go out in public, then what did it happen for? So action. Yeah. You have to, do, you have to make it for something. Um, again, I could have locked myself in. Then who am I affecting? But things happen for a reason if you make it for a reason. Um, and I needed to do that. I didn't want to lock myself in my house. So I had to get out and about. And I don't, I'm not going to call it an aha moment, but I will call it a moment of change where everything kind of got set into motion. And that was um, a little less than a year after my injury. When I finally was, I was out of the hospital, but I hadn't really gone into like public. I hadn't been like announced, like, here's Rick Yarish. Um, and I signed up, my mom actually signed me up for an event in Sugarland, Texas, um, through an, a group called Impact a Hero. And they were bringing a bunch of guys from the hospital in and baseball game and a lot of these cool things, dinners. And so we went to that and I met a bunch of other guys who had been wounded, not just guys from San Antonio. I met a really good buddy of mine who I really look up to now. Uh, uh, he was a staff, or staff sergeant at Paul Braunhaver uh, from Cincinnati, Ohio. And the um, two heads of the group was Jim Holker and Dick Lynch. And I think it was Jim asked me, he said, what do you want to do? And I was like, uh, get better. <laughs> really? I mean, that, at that point, I was still like sure. thinking. But, I'm like, but then I kind of got my mind thinking, like, what do I want to do? Like, this isn't just, it's not, my, my life isn't just going to be recovery forever. What am I going to do? And I actually told him, I said, I want to public speak. And I don't know why I said that. Because I was a terrible public speaker. <laughs> and I was terrified of it. Like, beyond terrified. So I have, I still can't, I'm try, I try to think back and I'm like, was there somebody that I watched that was like, that's what I want to do? I don't know. I said, I want to public speak. And he said, all right. And I was like, oh no, what did I just do? You know, what did I say? I'm like, well, maybe this guy isn't a man of action. Hopefully he just takes things in and then like brushes them off. Like a lot of people do. Sure. Like, uh, I'm not actually going to give this guy an opportunity. So I went to the weekend. I met some amazing people. Um. Made some amazing friends. And it was my first experience out in the community, really, being announced. And okay. um, some of it was tough, seeing the little kids and stuff like that around. But at the end, I saw so much support. And I really saw that from the day one when I got out. But that was the announcement of Ricky Arash. Here he is. He's the new, new and improved. Uh, at the time, I wouldn't have said that. So I told him that I wanted to be, I wanted to public speak. So then uh, a couple weeks later, he called me and he said, I got you a speaking engagement. And I was like, oh, what did I get myself into? So now I have to prepare myself. Sure. 
And this was pretty quick, right? Yes, yeah, so I was quick. Yeah, I expected a longer time. I'm still in a wheelchair at the time. I wish I could show you pictures of it. Um, actually, at that event, I was a mess. I was a disaster. Bandages all over. I had a, like a, a fishing cap on to keep the sun out of my face because I couldn't deal with any kind of sun. These are early days out. Open wounds on my face. Yeah, it was probably nine months after, ten months after. It was a disaster. So he got the speaking engagement in Houston, and it was at a Mormon church. And uh, I'm not Mormon. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. But I asked him, I said, well, what do you, because the church kind of surprised me as well. Like, what do, do, do you want me to make it about? He said, no, just talk. Tell your story. I said, okay, I got this. And I got, I bought a nice suit, and, and I filled out a piece of paper with notes on it that I slid up my sleeve, and I was ready. And I got to the church, and there wasn't, there were stairs to get up to the stage, and I, there was no ramp, and I had one leg, and I was a mess. So I had to hop up the stairs, and I sit in my chair, and I start talking, and I forget that I have a piece of paper in my sleeve, and I just talk for about 15 minutes, uh, and I really don't know what I said. No clue what I told them. But I saw at the end, everybody clap, and everybody listen. They've listened to the entire 15 minutes that I just talked to them. And I don't know what I said. That's kind of when I realized that I have a little bit of a stage here. Um, it didn't even matter what I said. So people are going to listen to me. So what am I going to do with that? I need to come up with something that's really meaningful to people. I don't think I realized that right away. It took time to do that. But in that moment, I saw that you know people are going to listen. And I need to do something with that. And that was the moment. That was that moment. I'm like, this is the path. And then they came slowly, slowly. And now um, we did over 115 locations last year. Wow! I was so touching thousands of lives. yeah, hundreds of thousands. We've hundreds been in front of over a million people speaking. That's now. incredible, right? Yeah. That's wonderful. That's it's it's wonderful. It's amazing, and it's so unexpected. Yeah. Because this is not where I ever would have placed myself. First of all, I never would have placed myself being injured. But I never, ever would have placed myself speaking, changing lives. Changing, I, mean, I, I tell people now, like, because there are things that I can't do anymore. Um, and I say, I use the example of uh, changing a light bulb. And that was just something that I can't do. There's A simple thing. Yeah, and there's, there's right. not a ton of things I can't do, but that's one of them I was thinking, they're like, what can't you do? And I'm like, I can't change a light bulb. And then I thought about it for a second, I said, I'll exchange that any day of the week though. For the fact that now I can change lives. Yeah. I and I have great friends and family who can change my light bulbs. That's wonderful. Man. Yeah. That's wonderful. I can't change a light bulb, but now I can change a life. And right. wow, why would I give that back? Yeah. And that goes fact. back that goes to me saying that I wouldn't go back and change that day mm-hmm. unless I can get Montez back. That's it. Right. For any other reason. And if nobody else had to deal with it. Like mm-hmm. my parents mm-hmm. and my friends. But if I had to go through it again, it'd be tough tough to say sign me up. But sign me up because I want to get back to where I'm at right now. Rick, I, uh, on one of your videos, I um, heard you tell a story about a young girl. I think she was about five years old. Would you mind sharing that with us? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, I'll just start by saying it was a life-changing moment for me. Uh, this little girl that came into my life when uh, things weren't looking so good for me. And that came from the fact that now I was out of the hospital pretty fresh and I left that safe area 
and that hospital was safe. The doctors and nurses had seen me every day and seen other people that looked like me uh, all the time, and I had saw those people as well. Now I have to go out in public, and people have to see me, and people are going to stare at me, and people are going to judge me, and people are going to say things. It's a whole different world. Uh, I got to get used to this, and it was very difficult for me to get used to because adults were very arm opening, um, standing there waiting for me. Opportunities, tons of opportunities, love, care—they were just there for me. But there was a demographic that wasn't, and that was children. Young children, when they saw me, were terrified, and that was frustrating because I love kids, and I, in my mind, every time I was going to go out in public, kids were going to be terrified for the rest of my life. So it was kind of a dark place, um, a place of hopelessness, really. And that came from the fact that they were afraid. So I needed somebody to come into my life. And I needed somebody to give me hope. Because this was something that I wasn't going to find on my own. I needed somebody to give it to me. That's what those sweethearts are. Those carriers of hope. I needed a sweetheart to come into my life. Um, now I know that I don't have to wait for sweethearts. I can go to them. I know who those sweethearts are. We all do. But I can go to them to get that hope. But in this circumstance, I wasn't getting back on my own. And I didn't know who to turn to. Um, so I had to wait for a sweetheart to come to me. And it was, uh, I was in a restaurant. And I was sitting with my brother at a table. And I was in my wheelchair, bandaged, uh, open wounds on my face. Scary. Especially to children. And there was a little girl sitting across from me. And she was uh, staring at me. And you could tell she was afraid. And her grandfather was sitting there with her, and her grandfather saw that she was staring at me. So he actually um, probably recognized that I was military. Most of the burn patients down there uh, were military in San Antonio. So he recognized that I was military, and he recognized that she was staring. So he did the right thing, really, but also the very difficult thing of saying, go say hi to him. And she wasn't coming over. Not a chance. You know, she was afraid. Um, but he didn't give up. So he said it again. He said, go say hi to him. And this time she started to come over. She probably thought, okay, I'll do what Grandpa says. And she started to come over to me. And I didn't want her to have to come all the way over because I knew she was really uncomfortable already. So when she got halfway, uh, as nicely as I could say to her, I said, hey, how you doing? And when I said that, she stopped dead in her tracks. She turned around and she ran back to her Grandpa. And really, I'm like, here we go. Again. Just figure it out. Deal with it. Something. I don't have any idea how to do any of those things. But now you feel rejected. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. But, but that's the way it had been sure. for months before. And that's how I figured it was always going to be. And it's never going to change. But did I expect anything different from her? No, that's exactly what I expected her to do. Uh, and then she got back to her grandpa. And she looked at him. And she said, Grandpa, he's really nice. Yeah. The exact opposite of what I thought she was going to do. And uh, I talked about a moment of hopelessness. Um, that little girl came over and changed my life by forever by dumping a bucket of hope on me. And she was five or six. So when we speak in schools, I tell them that a five-year-old gave me hope. So imagine what you're capable of. She didn't know that I needed hope. She didn't know that she had hope. But I still got it from her. doesn't matter that she didn't know it. Yeah. Imagine if we knew what we were capable of. 
Imagine if every kid in uh, this world knew what they had inside of them. And it sounds ridiculous to some people. Like, oh, that's just so nice. Like, and that's all it is. It's just a nice story. No. We all have it inside of us somewhere where we can change people's lives. And maybe even save people's lives. Because that little girl, I can guarantee you, for a fact, that she changed my life forever. Did she make it so that I wasn't naive enough to believe that when I went out in public now that kids right. weren't going to stare? No, not at all. But she gave me a confidence that I didn't have before. And the confidence came from, you know, now kids are going to stare at me. And if I see a kid staring at me and they're in close proximity, I will actually go up and I'll say, I'll talk to them. I don't tell them about war. I don't tell them about Iraq. Um, I'll just start talking and wherever it takes me. Sometimes I'll say, you know, I was in a fire and I said, I bet just a little lesson out of it. I bet your parents told you to never play with fire, right? No, oh, yeah. And instantly, like I said earlier in the conversation, he's just a man. That's what I become. Yeah. I'm just another guy. No, that's so nice. And, it, and it's that innocence of a child. Absolutely. It's, it's the truthfulness yeah. that comes out. Yeah. It gave you hope. And now you could, you could extend that yeah. to other kids. So for a long time, uh, I didn't do pre-K through fifth grade. I would only do middle and high. And that was a kind of like a... Uh, Calculated. Yeah, and I didn't want to scare kids. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't want them to have that bad reaction. Uh, There's a little bit of safety for them, mm -hmm. but it was a little, also a little bit of safety for me as well. Mm -hmm. I, did, I guess I didn't realize how much I could really handle. Um, but we started d doing that recently, and we realized the disservice we were doing when I wasn't doing them. Because when I walk out there, I hear it all. They're five or six years old. What do you expect? Right. They've never seen anything that looked like me before. Uh, of course they're going to say things. They, I walked out two days ago. Oh, my God. That was the first thing I heard from a prior first grader. Uh, I ran into a first grader at school one time and said, you look like Freddy Krueger. And I said, how do you know who Freddy Krueger is? <laughs> right, You're you in first grade. <laughs> but it doesn't yeah. bother me anymore. Yeah. It doesn't. Because... We went back to that school with the kid last year that said, you look like Freddy Krueger. And I didn't speak to that um, that grade level. I just ran into this school, the class in the hallway. And he said that. We went back again this year. I talked to the entire school this time. And the entire presentation, old Freddy Krueger kid, is waving to me. The whole time. Yeah. Yeah. I get to build connections. Sure. And in a difficult spot. You know, a lot of people... Um, there, how do you build that connection? And part of it is Amos bringing my service dog along, mm -hmm. but it's just letting them realize that you know what, he is just a man. And now, some schools will say, We're not sure if we want Rick. Um, and I get it, they're protecting their children, uh, they don't want to scare the, their kids. And I will say, You know what, you're gonna, you're gonna regret it, I mm -hmm. promise right. you, because at the end. Those same kids that were like, oh my God, or even like afraid, they're not anymore. Sure. It's a life lesson. It's not only... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, your story yeah. is, is great, but this will help them yeah. in many situations. Well, and so uh, we do some examples about leadership and uh, we tell kids what to do all the time, but really true leadership is showing yeah. people what to do. And we always say, you know... Treat that kid that's different like everybody else. Mm -hmm. But then, 
when we're in the grocery store and we see somebody that's different and the kid's staring, what do we do? We like cover their eyes or pull them aside. Don't stare. Like, right. how is that normal? Yeah. It's not treating them normal. So we're showing them something a little different. And uh, practice what you preach. Right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And we're all guilty of it. Sure. But a lot of times we're just pro- protecting our children, mm-hmm. or so we think we are. Right. But uh, I would say, you know, if a parent sees me and their kid is staring, me anyways, let them ask. Mm-hmm. Let them say the foolish things. They're five. They're six years old. Right. It doesn't bother me, and I can actually answer some questions. Yeah. And in the end, next time they see me, mom, there's Rick. That's yeah. all it is. That's no longer. Oh my gosh, look at that guy. Just a man. So let me ask you, at this point, uh, do you still have to prepare yourself emotionally every day? Or are you at a point now where... I'm pretty ready to go now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Depends. Mm -hmm. Um, Depends on the school. It depends on the atmosphere that we're walking into. I still get myself prepared because Mm -hmm. there's still nerves there, no matter how many times I do it. And... uh, Which is good, right? That's healthy. Yes, absolutely. And... Emotionally, I am so comfortable with the things that I'm saying that uh, it just flows now. Mm-hmm. When I get into topics that I don't talk about much, like today and talking about my parents and stuff, there's a, there's a passion there and there's, a, there's an emotion there because I don't talk about it a lot because I actually I hide that one a little bit. Sure. You know, vulnerable. Yeah. I feel vulnerable when I'm talking about that, which is good. Right. And I, lo- I and I actually enjoy talking about it. It's just hard to bring up day to day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, but yes, there's still emotion involved in it because, but the emotion doesn't come from me as much anymore. It comes from the people I'm talking to, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the message that uh, I'm getting from them. Just mm-hmm. yesterday, I got a letter in my email from a student, and just reading it is amazing. And uh, this is an elementary student. I don't know, probably fourth or fifth grade. It had to be. It was a well-written letter. And it was just amazing, the things that this kid is saying. So that's It's all I worth t- it, right? Oh, yeah. I take it with me everywhere I go. And I take those words with me mm-hmm. everywhere, those positive effects that I'm having. Or I wouldn't be doing this. Yeah. If I didn't hear results, how do you... You don't know you're doing well. Why do you do it? Right. You know, we, people don't continue to do things they don't do well. Sure. So, but that just reinforces... The day-to-day of yeah. all that hard work you're putting in. Yeah, and, and in the end, I love it. It's, 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 I don't even know if it's a job. It's fun. I, I enjoy what I'm able to do. If we can talk uh, a little bit about some characteristics that I notice that are important to you. First off, humor. Yeah, I'd be in trouble without humor. I mean, I have no ears, no nose, half a head of hair, and I'm overweight. If I didn't have a sense of humor, I'd be screwed. <laughs> I'd be screwed. I gotta have a sense of humor. Yeah. Life, uh, you gotta, it can't be so serious all the time. And I only make it serious probably like 49% of the time. 51% is humor. Uh, I gotta have that humor. And it's funny because when I'm doing a presentation, in the beginning, I mix my humor in with some of those serious moments, and people don't know whether to laugh or not. Right. Halfway through, they get it. And yeah. they're like, okay, I can laugh at this. Even though, normally, you're not supposed to laugh at something like this. Right. So they get to laughing. Humor's huge for me. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be who I am without my humor. I wouldn't be doing the things I'm doing without my humor. I have kids that come up to me afterwards that 
you should be a comedian. <laughs> and I said, oh, that corner, or that market's already cornered. A buddy of mine who was injured over in uh, the war was is a comedian now. Now uh, burned. And he's awesome. Bobby Headline. So, I'm like, I don't know if I want to do that. I, I really enjoy what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like it's always been part of your, your life, right? Oh, yeah. And even on the day of your, your accident, uh, you, yeah. you had some humor there. Um, you have two younger brothers? Two younger brothers, yep. A lot of humor in the family growing up. Yeah, I think um, being the oldest brother, too, all the uh, laughing was at them. And I don't think they laughed at me very often because I would have headlocked them or something like that. But yes, they were uh, the butt of a lot of jokes of mine. And yeah, we grew up, we were close, too, and we did a lot of stuff together. We were... Um, we did a lot of athletics. We did canoeing and kayaking uh, races out of town. We were very close together. And my brothers now, we're, we're, they don't live around here. But I, I will believe that, you know, that we're always very close. We don't talk that often. We're still very close. If we ever needed anything, they'd be there. My youngest brother's in the Air Force out in Wyoming, and my other brother is an amazing computer programmer in uh, Kentucky. They're both doing such amazing things. And... Uh, I wish they were closer, but that, I mean, I understand what, you know, that's life, and we move around, and sure. I know they're happy doing what they're doing. What are their names? Uh, my middle brother is Billy, and my youngest brother is Johnny. Okay. And I doubt they use the Y's anymore, but I will always use the Y's in their name. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, how much did your wrestling career and that discipline prepare you for what you yes. did today? Uh, I'd say a ton. And wrestling for me was a love-hate thing. I loved it at times, and I hated it at times because it was such a long and grueling season. There were years I'm like, I don't know if I want to do this again, but I did. And in the end, I believe that, I don't know, wrestlers are just a different breed of person. And when I was in the hospital, I actually was running into a couple people there, and I'm like, you were a wrestler, weren't you? You can just tell, just tell. by their attitude. Yeah. And uh, he's like, yeah, how do you know? I'm like, you know. It's just something else. There's um, a never quit attitude. I mean, you you're on your back and about to be pinned. The match is about to be over if you quit, or you hold on, you keep fighting, and you never know what can come out of it. And I think that's part of my mentality. I don't know what the result of this is going to be, but if I lay on my back and give up for good, I know what the result is. It's over. Mm-hmm. And just like that time I was in Iraq on fire, I laid on my back and I gave up. You know, in wrestling, you're done. You're pinned. Um, but thankfully, it was only for a second, and I ended up falling into that canal. So, and I've, I've done some talks where we talked to the wrestlers, and I, you know, what did I have to do when I got out of that Bradley? I had to escape. I had to get one point. I had to roll off of my back when I was on the ground. I had to escape that pin. Um, we were a big wrestling family as well. We... Uh, had wrestling mats in our garage for a time, and then they moved into the living room where my mom hated them. I bet. But yeah, it took over the house. We'd have practices after practice, so we were very into wrestling, and I believe that that shaped me, and a lot of that came from my dad. You know, my dad's uh, rules and uh, him pushing me to become better, really, again, in the end, what does it come down to? People around us. Right. And uh, my dad's the one that helped me get through all that stuff, and made wrestling a really big part of my life. And in the end, it, it was a huge factor in how I was able to recover. I, I do believe that. Mm-hmm. The resilience that you uh, gain from it. Mm-hmm. Um, pride. 
you talk about pride. Yeah. Um, uh, one, one of the big things is, is what can you really accomplish if you're not proud of who you are? So you got some things to work on there because if you're not proud of who you are, there's obviously some things going on. And they're not just going to be like, I'm now proud of myself. Uh, you got to take on each one of those things that, you know, this is why I'm not very proud of myself right now. And you got to take those on and you got to defeat one at a time until you can say, you know what? Now I'm proud of who I am. And that's where I am now. I wasn't always proud of who I was. Um, I think it was kind of here and there that I was. But now I am. I'm proud of who I am. And and I love how you say you're proud of how you look. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Um, the reason that this happened to me was something that I truly believed that I was doing the right thing. Um, I truly, when I was over there, I believed that I was helping people. That's That was my belief. And nobody can tell me different. You can't. It's my belief. You can't tell me any different. And that's why I'm proud of the way I look. I, I, was, I was proud of what I was doing. And this happened in that. And that's who you are. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. It is, again, new and improved. The new and improved me. Yeah. I never thought I could say that after something so horrific, mm-hmm. or what most people would think is horrific. And and I can tell you that that was the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> to lose my leg and my hand, the use of my hands and all the scars I see. It's hard to fathom. Yeah. But I, I know what you mean. Yeah, and I wouldn't have said, I wouldn't, you told me this would have happened to me before it happened. I said, let me go, let me die. No way. But, and the adversity we deal with in life is what shapes us. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm happy with the, I wouldn't change the adversity that I've had because I wouldn't be who I am now without that adversity. You talked a little bit about hope earlier. Yeah. Um, why is hope so important? Um, so in the sweethearts and heroes world, hold on possibilities exist. Um, if you don't hold on, well, what possibilities are there for you? That day that I was on fire in Iraq, what possibilities were there for me? I don't know, but there are some. Was I going to be a doctor someday? Probably not. I wasn't very smart, but was I? I don't know. Was I going to be a football player? Probably not, but I don't know. Was I going to be presenting to students? Probably not. I don't know. But if I didn't hold on, they wouldn't have. Those aren't possibilities once you give up. And um, the kids, a lot of times, lose hope. Mm. And not just kids, adults. And guess what? I know for a fact that I will lose hope again. We all will. In the death of a family member or a pet or something. Like, difficult times in our lives, we'll lose hope. Sure. But we have to hold on to find out the possibilities that exist for us. Because this I never believed was a possibility for me. And if I didn't hold on, it wouldn't have been. So we have to hold on. And when we speak to the kids, because, again, that's my main target, is these kids feel like they're going through hopeless situations, and to them it is. And maybe it's not like how hopeless I was being on fire, but it, to them, how, it's yeah, how can you gauge that? Right. They're 12. Right. Um, they might be the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And it could be worse mm-hmm. than what I was going through. I have no idea. But they have to realize that they need to hold on. And... In the end, I want everyone to know that they have that hope inside of them. So now they can change that person's life who might feel hopeless. The one that's holding on. But they also can't hold on forever. Right. So now that you know you have hope inside of you, give it to them. Right now. Don't wait. Because they can't wait any longer. That hopelessness that they're feeling is leading to unprecedented numbers. 
and suicides and drug addiction and do something yeah. now how many times did I see it when I was in school and what did I really do nothing but who told me that I had this powerful thing inside of me that I can actually change and save lives with nobody told me that so I want every kid to know that they have that hope inside of them that they can give to somebody else to get them through something really difficult in their lives hope is everything what are you without hope? We're nothing. Right. I'm, I'm the guy locked in my bedroom for the rest of my life without hope. And that's, who am I affecting in a positive way? No one. Yeah. Rick, as I mentioned, you and I have a lot in common. Um, my mission through American Real is to really enlighten and empower people through the stories of my guests yeah. like you. Um, yet, I, you know, I want to reach people... Um, on more of a micro level. Mm-hmm. So it's great for us to have this conversation. Yeah. But it's more important to me for the people that are listening to take something from it. Yeah. Exactly what you're doing, you know, day to day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so 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 you know these individuals could realize their own hero's journey. Right? Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Um man, in the end of it all it goes back to what I said earlier is we don't know what we can get through until we have no choice but to get through it. We have to hold on to that idea because yes, things are going to get difficult and there's many things that we can turn to to fix, to alleviate that. Or we can hold on and rely on those people around us who can give us those positive messages and hopefully those ones who are needing hope in that moment, I can give it to them. Hopefully. I don't know if I can or not, but I hope so. And I tell kids, when I sit down with them, I tell people, it doesn't matter who it is. I say, listen to this statement. And I say, every morning I wake up, I roll out of bed, I get into my wheelchair, and I wheel into the bathroom, and I put my prosthetic leg on. And then I stand up, and I look in the mirror, and I see the scars, and I think about the past. And now, end statement. What was the most important thing I said in that statement? It was the very first part. Every morning I wake up. And one of the things is, is people that are dealing with tough situations in their life, they're dealing with those tough situations because they're concentrating on the distractions. Mm -hmm. My leg. My scars. Those are all distractions to me. If I concentrate on those things, they take over. Why not concentrate on the important thing in life? The fact that I get to wake up every morning and make choices. Do I make the right choice every day? No. Just like everybody. But then I get to go to bed at night and I get to think about those choices and if I made the wrong choice, I get to fix them the next morning when I wake up. We can make changes in our lives. We can make the right choices in our lives. Not every single time. We're not going to make them every single time. But then when we go to bed, we can think about, you know what, how can I make a difference tomorrow? How can I change that bad choice that I made. People need to know that, you know, life is tough. And most people already know that pretty darn well. But we have to hold on. We have to find out the possibilities that exist for us. And we have to realize that there are sweethearts in this world that are going to help us get through really difficult situations. I think from the entire conversation that we've had, one thing that people will gather is it wasn't all me by any means. It was people around me in almost every situation. But now, like I said, I can, sur- I can surround myself with them. 
I don't have to wait for them. I know who they are. We all do. So when I'm dealing with a difficult time in my life, go to them. Who are those positive influences in my life? Go to them. Sprint to them. Get there as fast as you can and rely on them. That's so important. It's so important. Um, do we need to understand uh, and, and, and positively reflect on our past and assess our current situation in order to grow in the future? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I think so. Um, now, now, there's parts of my past that I would love to just forget. But if I forget them, how did I grow from them? Um, we have to grow from every situation that we've dealt with. There's been decisions after my injury that I've regretted. Um, maybe not doing a, uh, an exercise that I was supposed to do for my recovery. And I had to learn from that. Things that I've, uh, the choices that I've made when somebody shows me hate and I just choose to kind of sit back and not do anything. People would think that's a great way to handle it. You didn't do anything. You didn't show bad reaction. Well, I didn't show any reaction. Now I learned from that. And I had to show a positive thing the next time it happened. I had to fill the hate-filled conversation with a hope-filled conversation. We learn from all the mistakes, all the bad things that we do in life. And if I forgot those things, oh man, I, I should probably forget that because all I did was create a million people that hated because I didn't say anything. Well, if I forgot that, how do I learn my lesson? I'll, I'll have something come up in the future where I'm going to have to look back and be like, all right, this is where I make that change. This is where that lesson was learned. And it's going to happen a lot of times, many, many more times in my life. Yeah. And we're all, we're all a collection of stories. Would you agree? Yeah, we all have stories. And uh, that's another thing is um, you don't know what that person's going through. Right. There's a story there, and that's a long one. It's a long story. There's a lot of things that have gone on in that book. And we don't know their story. So we can't judge a book by its cover. There's so many sayings for it. But it's so true. If people just saw me, didn't know anything about me, I don't know what they're thinking. But that's why they got to hear the story. The rest of the story. Like I said about the, the towers being hit with the airplanes. Boom. Front page. No words, no nothing. You can't find anything good in that. Read the story after. Yeah. My Bradley. I can show you a picture of my Bradley burnt to the ground. And you look at that picture and you say, ooh, nothing good in that story. Listen to the story. The rest of the stories is, is amazing. Um, we all have stories. And I think it's important to tell your story. No matter who you are, no matter what you've gone through, no matter how irrelevant you think it is. And even if it's at the dinner table, yes. right? Or with your group of friends or family. Absolutely. We need to share the stories that we have. I can't tell you how many times at the end of a day, uh, a 16-hour day, you sit down with your family or your friends and say, how was your day? Good. What'd you do? Nothing. You did nothing in 18 hours? That's not true. We have to communicate. Yeah. We, we have to, to communicate. Absolutely. Your day was full of stories. I mm -hmm. guarantee it. Guarantee it. We got to tell the stories. What does your Medal of Courage mean to you? Uh, honestly, the second biggest honor that I've uh, had. First one was my Purple Heart. The day that I got my Purple Heart. And the Purple Heart, when I was in the hospital, generals and stuff were coming around and 
they were like, you know, so-and-so is going to be here today. Would you like him to give you your purple heart? And I said, no. I want my lieutenant and my platoon to come and give me my purple heart. So when they got back from Iraq, that's what I did. So that was a huge day for me. Uh, mostly because of the circumstances that surrounded it. And then the Medal of Courage uh, is the second one because... First of all, it's something I never, ever, ever thought I'd be a part of. I was an okay wrestler. And that's who gave it. It was National Wrestling Hall of Fame honor. I didn't think I was deserving. I stood in a row of men who dedicated their life to wrestling. One of them was a gold medalist, Rulon Gardner. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's a household name to most people. He defeated somebody who's never been defeated before. And I'm standing in that group. So honestly... It was hard for me to accept that award wow. because these guys have worked their entire lives. And what have I really done? I enjoyed wrestling. But if I look at what the award is truly about, then I can accept it. Yeah. It's the courage that I showed through some crazy adversity. And I get to share that story with some of these people in the wrestling community. And I get to hopefully change uh, their lives as well. So I I accept it now, and but honestly, it's it's this, it's the second biggest um, award that I've ever received. Uh, they brought me into a brotherhood that I never thought I'd be a part of. I would have loved to have been a gold medalist wrestler, but I know what it takes, mm-hmm. and I didn't have that. I did not have that. I did not have the love for it. I did not have the work ethic that these guys have. So to be brought into their group. Yeah, I, I, can't, I don't even know how to describe it, honestly, because it truly is one of the biggest honors. It's yeah, like it's receiving amazing. the Purple Heart. Sure. How do you explain how big of an honor it truly is? It's hard to do. Well, they're both incredible honors. Rick, I can only imagine the spirit of Amy, your wife. Can you give us a little bit of... Yeah. Uh, again, first, she's amazing. I... Uh, I don't know how much else it takes to explain her because she's amazing. But for a long time in my life, I didn't know if this would ever happen. And there were some dark times with that because who's going to accept me and who's going to allow themselves to wake up every morning with me? That was tough for me. So we talked about acceptance earlier. Where was my acceptance in that? And I had to find the right one. The, the perfect one. And I actually uh, met her online. And being in Binghamton, there's not many people that don't know who I am in some way. So that's usually the reason somebody will start talking to me. They knew, know who I am. They know what I've gone through. They're not going to look at my face and not know my story and be like, that's the guy. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, she liked one of my pictures on Match. We were on Match together. So I looked, and I never got on it. I was was a part of it, but I never looked at it. And I just happened to look like two or three days after she had liked a picture. And I saw she was wearing a Giants shirt, which was a a plus for sure. And her blue eyes was another plus for sure. And I liked a picture. That's as far as I went, because I'm a a huge wuss. That's what it comes down to. And that's always been me, forever. Before my injury as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, eh, that's as far as I'm going. (laughs) That's a big step for me. So then she writes me after she saw that I liked her picture. And then I found out that she had no idea who I was. She had no clue about Iraq. She had no clue. 
she just saw a guy that was burned. And then a couple days later, she had mentioned me to her dad. After I had told her kind of what happened, she looked it up and she saw some of the stuff. But in the beginning, she started talking to me without knowing anything about me and who I was. Which and that was important to you? Oh, uh, it was huge to me. Very big. And uh, I still think about it often. I don't think she thinks about it, but that's, that's how amazing she is. She, she's like, what do you mean? What's the big deal? Because it wasn't a big deal to her. Everybody else, it would be a big deal, not to her. So she's amazing. She uh, brings so much to my world, and uh, and the biggest thing of that is love. Um, her family is some of the closest. That's it's the biggest thing in her life, and now it's part of my life as well. And I love that uh, she's a part of my family's life. She's just tr- truly amazing. Uh, for a long time, I would say that I wasn't complete without love. And I don't want to say I'm complete now because I still feel like I, I always have some growing to do. But this is as close as I've ever been for sure. And uh, I can't think of anything I would change right now. And in my world, um, things are pretty good. Things are pretty amazing. And we have a five-year-old, Tenley, who's... Uh, it's just... I don't know. That's a tough one to even talk about because I'm a father now. And I get to take care of somebody. I get to show somebody how to grow up and help them and give them a significance and uh, maybe even grow their acceptance in the world. And she's about at the same age as the little girl who came up. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. And another thing to tell me is I don't know if she's ever seen me as different. I don't know. She's never said anything. And she even explains to her friends. um, If they ask what happened, she'll tell them. It's just that's important. It is important, yeah, yeah. and um, it's just amazing to be a father now. Uh, I, I love the role that I'm playing. I skipped the first day of work for me to watch her get on the bus. That's something I can never get back. And uh, things are gonna have to change soon with my travel because I am so busy. And the most important things in my life were my family, yeah. and work is up there. I'm changing. People's lives is top three, for sure. So I have to dedicate myself, and uh, I have to be there for them. So next year, probably, I'll slow down the schedule a little bit more, and I really need to concentrate on being there for my family because they're worth it. Everything that um, I do in the end, I get to come home and uh, see them, and life life changing every day. You know, every time I get to come home, because for a long time that wasn't the case. I came home to just me, and That's now I have a family at home waiting for me. So it's an amazing feeling, and uh, never something that I didn't know if it would ever happen, and it happened. And it goes back to hope, hold on, possibilities exist. Awesome. Uh, look, Rick, this has been just amazing. We could sit here for for several more Absolutely. hours. Absolutely, we will definitely have you back. All right. Um, you are now part of the American Real family. I love it. Appreciative of that. But before we let you go, one last question. Yes. What do you want your legacy to be? Okay, so, um, you know, I've had, I've had a portrait painted of me. Um, Matt Mitchell. Matt Mitchell, yes. absolutely. 100 Faces of War experience. Yes. Uh, again, another an ama- amazing honor. Yes. I, I may put that at number three. Um, but minus my face, minus anybody ever seeing me again not even knowing my name 
I hope they can read my story. And they can take all that out because I don't need the glory. They just need to know the story so that the story can affect their lives forever. That my story will keep going until, until whenever. That people will get something. And again, it doesn't have to be Rick Yerish went through this. I don't even know this guy's name, but look what he went through. Look how he's changing our lives. I'm, that's what I want. I want the legacy. I don't even know if it's really a legacy if they don't know who I am. But I just want to continue changing lives forever. Whether they know it's me changing their lives or not, it doesn't matter. I just want, I want that. And I want to know that when I'm gone, that message is going to keep going. That's wonderful. Well, you're doing that every day. You're living your legacy. And we are so appreciative of, what, of, of all that hard work. And Rick, before we let you go, where can people go to find out more about your story? Sure. So I have my own website, uh, rickyarish.net. The .net part bugs me. Somebody already had rickyarish.com. Yeah, go figure. So rickyarish.net is um, my website. You can go there, find a lot of information. And then also sweetheartsandheroes.com as well. Um, that's our anti-bullying presentation that we do and in the end we don't even have to talk about bullying it's character building in kids but yeah so sweetheartsandheroes.com rickyarish.net uh, all of our social media sites if you search Rick, Rick Yarish on the internet you can find anything you would like to about me and uh, I'd love to come into the school into your school district and uh, speak to um, your kids and I, that's, that's my passion great well hopefully our listeners will reach out we'll definitely post those links and uh, make sure that, that our folks know how to reach yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for being here. And we are now friends for life. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Roger, for having me. This has been an amazing couple of hours. I loved it. Appreciate it. Thank you.